Hi, welcome to the new voting project. My name is Kunal, your host. Um, today we're here with Elisa Victory, um, a staff attorney uh, for the criminal justice program at the ACLU of Northern California. They're also current counsel to local union CWA um, 9415 and an all around community organizer. You've been doing it a lot longer than I have. Um, so thank you for taking the time to be here with me today. I understand you're super busy with all the law and litigation and you know real life problems. Um, but let's let's dive into the to these interview questions. All right. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to just be here and talk about voting rights and civil rights. Excellent. Um, so yeah, for our first questions for the viewers, um, kind of you know detail the work you've done uh, for the state of California when it comes to your role at the ACLU you know, your passion for criminal justice reform, police accountability, um, and, and why why you became an advocate from Oakland, California. Um, I'll give you kind of a short one and we can talk about it as we get deeper into the interview. Um, I am raised in Oakland. I've lived here my whole life. I've lived in every one of the seven districts that make up the city and currently live in East Oakland still. And Oakland has a very unique history and energy here of activism, of organizing, of speaking truth to power and being the conscious for the rest of the country and for the state. I am fortunate to be raised by a teacher who really instilled in me kind of history and knowledge of self even beyond what I was learning in school, helped me to learn that education can come from yourself and not just your school teachers. But I really credit kind of my start into organizing and community advocacy with Oakland-based nonprofit Youth Together. Um, sophomore year, I started attending after-school meetings run by Youth Together that were all about political education and not things we weren't learning in school, but like how our school was being funded, um, why certain students, like students who were undocumented, were being singled out for exclusion why there were laws happening to try to bar them from accessing public education. We're learning about Prop 13 and property taxes. But what really captured me in that moment was a lot of those workshops were taught by students. Many students were younger than me. That was my first time realizing that people would let, you know, high school sophomores and freshmen talk about such important issues that we could really come together on our own as young people to organize each other, to educate each other. I then learned about principles of organizing and like how to base build, how to movement build, how to have a meeting, um, how to organize a rally or a walkout. And so they've given me so much of my foundation to just even understand some of the social justice issues that our state and that our city has been facing. And many of them are still the same today as they were in high school but gave me a structure and they were actually my first paid job ever, was a lead student organizer. So they were offering students payment to engage in this type of work. And so that really catapulted me into this whole arena of like public service, social justice and community organizing. And I took that with me into college. I went to UC San Diego and I didn't know what I was gonna do when I got there, but I ran straight to the ethnic studies department and never looked back. I majored in ethnic studies, minored in black studies and starting my second semester or quarters as they call it at UCSD, I was teaching a class and working at a student run education center on campus. The first class I taught was student initiated movements in higher education. 
and I was a freshman in college and all of the students were seniors. So I have, you know, I was able to take and immediately apply a lot of the skills and organizing I've been doing in high school and definitely brought that to my campus. I was a member of pretty much every student organization that focused on identity, on racial justice. I chaired the Black Student Union um, the same year that we founded the Black Resource Center on campus. And I started to turn towards criminal justice in college, really. One of the main things that started me becoming passionate about criminal justice statewide was the murder of Oscar Grant III in Oakland by BART police on January 1st, 2009. I was entering my third year in college. My family had lost our home due to eviction and the housing foreclosure crisis. And I was home actually for that break, right? It was New Year's. I was home for break and there was so much momentum, community response, protest and organizing that started to happen triggered by the horrific, horrific killing of Oscar Grant III. I almost didn't want to go back to UCSD. I was like, I need to stay here in Oakland, organize with people. But I still took that energy back to my campus, helped you know, lead the Black Student Union as a liaison that year. And we organized with community groups in San Diego. We partnered with other Black Student Union chapters across SoCal, LA, San Diego areas. and did solidarity actions to show our support for the Justice for Oscar Grant Coalition here in the Bay Area. We even invited speakers from other members of, uh, of people who were shot and killed by police or who were brutalized by police in SoCal to come and speak to our campus, to speak to our students, so we could really understand kind of the history behind this practice of police use of force and abuse of black and brown residents. And it prompted me to really start continuing organizing against police brutality, against police terrorism and racial injustice in the criminal system. I again majored in ethnic studies and my honors thesis, my final year in college, was focused on writing my was focused on writing my honors thesis for the department, which was about police terrorism and anti-black genocide in the US. I was looking at case studies, including Oscar Grant III's case, um, the civil case that his family brought, and the cases of DeAndre Brunson, who was murdered by LAPD, and the case of Danroy DJ Henry, who was a Pace University student who was killed by New York police, and looking at the similarities and the similar design that happened, as well as the lack of consequences and accountability in those three cases. And that was kind of my first deep dive into law or criminal justice or actual court cases. And that sparked me onto my next step, which was going into law school. Um, but I'll stop there and definitely law school helped me concretize what I could do with the law. Right, and now you work at the ACLU, which isn't too bad, you know? That's terrible. <laughs> right, and um, why do you think, you know, why did you choose to enter this kind of like highly politicized world movement, you know, kind of where we're at right now in time, right? Why, why, why do this as, as a career choice? Um, my career is really in justice. Law is one tool for me to do that and to advocate and, you know, helps me just have more insider access to do what I need to do. I have access to judges and to other lawyers and to legal bodies and policy making 
body. And so, I'm a pretty good lawyer too, you know, without the degree. <laughs> and the, Many people are, many people are. Um, I don't, I don't necessarily think this moment's more political than others. I think the media has talked about it more so about police brutality, around black civil rights, but pretty much anything black people have done to survive and assert our rights in this country is considered political, right? Me just being a part of a black student union as part of the 1.7% of black students at UC San Diego was considered political, even if we were just having a party and a social. So most of what I do is considered political, even though it's really just about serving people, it's about justice. And you know, those things always seem to be so controversial because we have such a long, long history of oppression in this country. Right, and kind of, I guess, following that line of thought, what what do you actually do for the ACLU here in Northern California? Kind of explain your role a little bit. That's a good question. Uh, it could change. <laughs> I try to on only ask good questions. Trust me. <laughs> it could change, you know, depending on what time of the year you're asking me. Uh, I've been at the ACLU since right before pandemic shelter in place started last year. And that has kind of changed our work to do a lot of rapid response, especially with people who are incarcerated, who cannot socially distance, who are not you know, able to control whether they have masks or hand sanitizer or can properly clean. So that was kind of already shook up what I thought I was going to do. But my role as a staff attorney, I do legal and policy advocacy. ACLU as a whole is a civil rights, civil liberties organization that works with a lot of different methods of advocacy, many of them legal, but we also have organizing staff. We have comms and media that also provides a lot of our advocacy and we do legislative office or legislative advocacy through our legislative office. I work um, in our criminal justice team. Our team right now has three major focuses, which is decarceration, right? Getting people out of the jail system, out of cages and into actual programs or resources or places where they're able to address whatever mental health issues or addiction, substance abuse. Um, our second bucket is police and sheriff's accountability. That can be a very large scope of work because policing and sheriff's work looks very different city by city and county by county. But a lot of it's been oversight bodies, civilian oversight of law enforcement, strengthening those bodies or creating new ones. It's been about accountability of you know, independent investigations into incidents of misconduct, doing audits to see where this money is really going that we give to these departments or how efficient they're really and, performing. And, right. And would you mind doing that where I live? Because I really <laughs> want to audit the sheriff's office. Uh, I. We both live in the same county, Alameda County. Yeah, uh, I, I think you might understand why. Absolutely. And I will say that ACLU is a very strong partner org where we're not you know, directly impacted uh, organization that we do have a lot of kind of statewide power and privilege. So we collaborate a lot with grassroots orgs, with nonprofits that are more local. And so we do work with a whole coalition of organizations in Alameda County that called themselves Audit Ahern, that were auditing the sheriff, that have continued that advocacy about transparency and accountability. So definitely Alameda County is one of the areas that I work in through the ACLU doing that type of work. Um, and our third kind of bucket for criminal justice overall is DA accountability. 
Um, you know, DAs are prosecutors, they're elected across all of our counties and hold a lot of power over how their offices are staffed, what their policies are, what their positions are in terms of, you know, opposing probation or other people's release, um, what their charging practices are, how they approach sentencing. So we do a lot of advocacy to try to have more relationships and really have transparency of what's going on in these offices to make sure that people even know this is an elected position that is accountable to the voters. And again, to advocate for things that are decarcerative or to advocate that you know the DA investigate an officer that is accused of misconduct or abuse of power. And they have the power to prosecute officers as a form of accountability. So our three kind of areas overlap a lot, but those are the main things that we do. And we do them through, again, litigation, legislation, direct advocacy with groups on the ground, media, and other strategies all together. Got it. So I get to be in the center of that, you know, fielding requests, maintaining relationships, doing legal research and analysis, and even review of policies at the local level. Very cool. Very, very cool. It's all interesting stuff. Um, but, but kind of kind of switching gears a little bit, what, what have you learned since the 2020 election? It was very tumultuous, you know, peculiar and strange, you know, once in a century pandemic, hyper-polarized political world. What would you say, you know, what are, what are some lessons you took away from that experience and maybe some solutions to those that are a little bit skeptical about, about elections now? You know, I wouldn't blame them. My takeaways from 2020 elections are that we still don't have enough people participating in our democracy. And that's not necessarily by choice, by design, that there's so much misinformation. And you know, Donald Trump even kind of started this really mainstream talking point of fake news. Everything's just fake. There was so much just mistrust from the public of what candidates were saying, what platforms they were promising, what even happened with the election results. And there was a lot of media that was assisting in creating that confusion or putting out misinformation that I think we're seeing just an erosion of public trust in our democracy and our voting systems and definitely in our voting rights and voting laws. Um, you see some people, you know, came out of kind of a state of shock from Trump being in office and others who remember that it was not too long ago that we had presidents who were openly endorsed by the KKK and that this is kind of business as usual in the US. So in many ways, you know, the Trump presidency brought to the forefront a lot of our, again, longstanding racial injustice, um, white supremacy, history of oppression and xenophobia in this country. And 2020, you know, I think a lot of people had more hope, you know, for the Biden Kamala Harris administration coming in to do justice to some of those things that were you know, completely eroded during Trump to restore some faith in you know, having compassionate humanitarian leaders. Um, it's still questionable if we're fully seeing that knowing there's ongoing conflicts that our country's involved in internationally that you know, still people here are massively suffering with unemployment, with COVID and with other effects of the pandemic. Um, but ever since the 2020 elections, we've seen that COVID has prompted us to 
to really invest more in people, right? We've seen unemployment open the gates for people to receive the maximum, um, even if they weren't previously eligible, people like independent contractors who had never been eligible for unemployment were now eligible to receive this kind of basic income. And we see free food distribution happening, especially here in the Bay Area. We've seen rent forgiveness and eviction moratoriums where people are able to stay in their housing despite not having paid rent or all of their rents. And so it put into question just a lot of how capitalism and our economy is really serving people or not, and has given a lot more kind of debate to some of the fundamentals of how our country operates on the national stage all the way down to locally. Um, even the city of Oakland is now piloting a partnership program to run universal basic income for certain families here. And you know, I hope that it expands and we now have our state governor who has now released a statewide plan. So I think since 2020 and the kind of convergence of emergency conditions, we're seeing people do things that we've told could never happen, that we could never have basic income given to us by our governments. We could never have housing subsidized or socialized by our government, that we could never have food subsidies and rations, but we've seen all those things happen and continue to happen now. And there's going to be even more pressure for them to continue because it's kind of a question now of why didn't we have these before and why would we ever have to go back to how things, you know, to the normal that we used to have. Makes sense, makes sense. And in your opinion, how important, how important is voting? Do you think 16 year olds, you know, I'm 17, do you think, you know, we should have the ability to vote, uh, at least in local elections, um, school board elections, maybe city council? Um, why is voting rights, you know, the, I guess the quintessential issue we've been dealing with since the 60s? You know what I mean? Absolutely. Um, voting is important. Voting is important because that's been the cornerstone of our alleged democracy in this country. And democracy continues to be the alibi for so many of our systems of injustice. And people say, well, you didn't vote, so you can't complain. Well, you don't know that this election was happening. You're not engaged, so you can't complain if you're not going to run yourself. But there's so many barriers to actually exercising that right to vote because it is key to having an actual democracy that represents people, that reflects the needs of the masses. And so if you are effectively disenfranchising whole communities, whole interest groups of people, whole regions of people from voting, then you can say, well, this was a democratic process. And so if we get someone in here only is beholden to one type of interest, then we'll still say that's sufficient. And people just have to wait for the democratic process when re-elections come up. But voting has been so contested in this country because it's more often been denied than it's been given. Um, that it's continually, continually tried to roll back voting rights for basically anyone who's not a white male property owner. Right, those were some of the basic requirements right. when we first uh, created the franchise in this country. Uh, the 15th Amendment, you know, which declared that you have the right to vote free from uh, racial discrimination and prejudice was passed in the 1800s. Right, the 1800s was when we first tried to establish this constitutional amendment of the right for everybody to vote. But then we still had women's suffrage movements in the 20s, right? You still had the civil rights 
movement, um, we're still in a civil rights movement, but you had the kind of civil rights era that people think of in the 60s that helped us uh, get the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Right. But even that act has been gutted uh, with the case of Shelby versus Holder back in 2013 when Obama was still in office. That we've that really gutted a lot of the actual precautions and protections um, for entire states to not engage in voter enfranchisement, disenfranchisement, excuse me. And we're still fighting now with the John Lewis Voting Rights Act to replace all the things that were struck down in 2013. But that just shows us that, okay, you can amend the constitution and this is a constitutional right. Again, constitutional rights, democracy has been the alibi, but these are not fundamental rights. These are not inalienable because most people have never realized them right. so, for a non-white man. Right, so what do you think about Georgia right now? Especially with their, like you said, voter disenfranchisement, infringing on you know, our most basic inherent rights, right? What is what? Are, what are your thoughts? What do What do we do as young people? You know, as, as almost almost a voter, you're a voter, right? What What do we do about it? Um, a lot of it's really about power, and even some of the things that Georgia has done or is trying to do are illegal, right? There's a lot of conflicts of interest with you know even their last uh, gubernatorial race that happened with Stacey Abrams. <laughs> yeah, but. I think what we can do is when continuing to educate people, educate them early, and to really do voter registration drives in areas where nobody is campaigning, where nobody feels those voters matter or that they really are intentionally trying to keep them suppressed. Some of the things like media and people who are you know, on the ground trying to document what is happening is important. It's gonna be important for legal cases that try to challenge these states and try to challenge election results to at least have kind of a clear record from the people of what has happened. Um, definitely joining in voting rights organizations in these states that are actively trying to pass voter suppression laws is going to be key. I think states, you know, like California can do even more as a state to put their support for full voter rights and enfranchisement enfranchisement across the country and to condemn some of the specific leaders, right? These are people, these are legislators, these are elected officials that are making these decisions on behalf of all of the people. Again, democracy is the alibi. Oh, well, it's okay, all these people were elected, probably elected using folks that, using disenfranchisement where not everyone in their district could vote for them. So there's, really intentional kind of exclusion of entire people to consolidate certain power. And especially in these Southern states, a lot of it's still targeted at people based on race, based on income, based on nationality as well, and even language access. And so kind of, you know, white supremacy has a way of repeating itself and reproducing itself. So you can outlaw voter ID laws and literacy tests, but then you'll have other, you know, we have even specific IDs and well, there's people who still get to guard how those regulations are enforced at the actual voting polls. So I think it's, for some states, it's more depressing than others, but you should still, especially as new voters and people are turning voter age, that should be even more, more momentum and energy to want to exercise the franchise and to try to flip 
you know, some of these state legislatures, try to flip some of these state governors from the Republican Party that are kind of openly campaigning on exclusionary right. laws and wanting to basically limit who can even participate in their democracy. Again, states like Georgia have been on the list of specified states since the Voting Rights Act of 1965 that had to have any new voter regulations or restrictions first approved by the federal government because they have such a strong history of disenfranchisement, of racism, of exclusion of people across the board that they could not be trusted. And so it is important that we restore that portion of the Voting Rights Act because it's clear that now, ever since this has been lifted, these states have used that as a green light to go ahead and oppress their own citizens and residents who are voter eligible. In terms of just young people voting, I think the voting age needs to be lowered. There's efforts to lower it to 17 in California um, that did not pass statewide, but Oakland Youth Vote did pass, which allows 16 and 17 year olds in our city to vote in our school board elections. And that goes into effect next year, 2022. And I testified and signed on to a lot of different advocacy pieces to our council to approve that ballot measure to voters because Again, I started organizing. I started my social justice career when I was in high school, when I was a sophomore. I was 14 years old. I went to college when I was 17 years old. So I know firsthand how much power our youth can have when adults get out of their way, when they are able to participate and have a voice, that youth are dealing with a lot of the same issues that adults are. They're dealing with homelessness. They're dealing with food insecurity. They're dealing with the health pandemic. Right, they're dealing with trying to work. You know, I, my first job was in high school. I know people who are in my friend circles who've worked since they were in middle school to help pay bills for their family, to help pay for their BART or their bus fare to get to school every day. So youth are still dealing with all the same things that adults are dealing with. And it's a bit arbitrary to say they can't be trusted uh, to vote for people that would have their best interests at heart. And young people are our future. And oftentimes y'all have to inherit the leadership that adults have given you that really does not serve you. So I absolutely believe it's important, know it's important to vote and believe the franchise should be expanded for younger people. Fantastic. <laughs> I just wish it was more universally accepted. But yeah, no. If they met you, if they met you, they'd be like, right. oh yes. If exactly. everyone's like, no, they're ready to vote. Exactly, exactly. Um, but that kind of leads me, you know, young people obviously should get involved, um, be engaged, right? Civic engagement. Do you want to get involved? You know, are you already at a pretty high level, um, but do you have any aspirations to run for office? Um. I do, and I will say I'm currently an elected official. I was publicly right. elected um, in a, it's kind of an obscure election. Uh, it's internal to the Democratic Party, but anyone who registered- Yeah, I, I meant to mention it, but you know, try not to be too partisan these days. It's all good. Um, so I have ran before this year, um, the beginning of this year, I ran to be a delegate for my assembly district, assembly district 18 to the Democratic Party. I was one of seven women elected, and then there are seven non-women identified folks elected with me. 
And that was my first ever public race and being on a ballot and anyone who registered as Dem and requested a ballot could have voted in that election. And I, I am enjoying serving my assembly district, getting more deeply involved, especially with the civic engagement organizations here. And I absolutely have a desire and a goal to run for public office, um, likely in the city of Oakland next year. And I'll have to come back and tell you more about that because we're not released a lot of info about that yet. But you know, my law degree actually was concentrated in government law. I did a lot of public service work for the city and county of San Francisco and for the city of Oakland, as well as worked with statewide um, electeds or organizations while I was in law school, knowing that I wanted to go into public service and have taken some detours into labor and employment law, into criminal justice, but all of that is still about public service, um, you know, workers' rights and justice and people who are currently incarcerated. So I think all of that's helped me to sharpen my drives and my passion and the things that I would want to accomplish if and when elected to a different office. Great, yeah. Great teaser there. You got to come back on the show. Let us know what you run for. You know? Got to say a few things. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, more more specific to kind of my generation, right? So Gen Z is the official term. Do you have any advice um, when it comes to voting, elections, um, criminal justice reform, accountability, staying engaged? You know, what what is your advice to our generation? You know, the the next the next voting class um, or the next batch of elected officials to come in the next, you know, maybe decade or two? I think it's important to meet people where they're at and your generation and younger people are actually a lot better at doing that, that people will show up for, you know, a concert or a dance more than they'll show up to hear a political candidate give a speech, right? So really using where your community is at, what youth are enjoying doing, right? Talking about schools and having this Oakland youth vote for school board is a great way to bring people into civic engagement from where they're already at. Like people may not understand how someone like a county supervisor affects them, but they may understand how their school board director does. Um, and so really doing some education, but education that is accessible to youth that helps them understand and walks through even some of the terminology that people use and the assumptions people make about what we should know about our government. I'm not gonna lie, I barely knew what the three branches of our government were before I went to law school. And even in law school, just so many things I was learning, I was like, why didn't I really get any of this in K through 12? And are there organizations for people who are on the ground who are organizing, who are involved in the issues, but don't know how politics and electeds affect this. And so a lot of people, you know, will organize their whole life and start to realize, oh, like my whole campaign has been held up by this one elected official who has the power to say yes, or right. to vote yes. So again, really doing your research and starting from, you know, where people are at, what gets them excited, where they're already passionate about and how politics can influence that impacted or amplify it. I think y'all are great at just building a movement through culture of, you know, videos, of TikToks, of music to get people to come out to vote, you know, having like really cool swag to get people to vote. I think that- Does ACLU have swag? Better. Does ACLU have swag? 
we do have swag, but it's usually like limited to gray or blue colors and oh. just like. Do I get a, do I get you know, a, it's not a lot of design that gets involved in our stuff. I think we maybe need some young people to help us with right. our stuff. Do, do I get a plug because like, you know, you know, I should, you know, it's me, you know, <laughs> like I, I should receive something, right? Um, I don't know. I see you really fishing for some gifts. There might be some mugs I can send to you, some ACLU pens. Again, like our yeah. swag is for older people, right? Yeah, I, don't, I don't need Young mine. people might want like sunglasses or even masks or a lot more, yeah, a lot more yeah. in style now. Yeah. Um, so again, I think, you know, your generation, like y'all have it. You already have it. Y'all are even more tapped in and communicate with each other faster than adults can sometimes. And I think using all the strengths of young people, the freedom, the time that y'all have, the networks you already have created through after school things or at school and in classrooms is so important and can be capitalized on to help create a really strong base of young people that know what's happening, that are not just civically engaged, but that are politically educated, not just about with our two party system, but like, what is the history of them? What's the history of their exclusion? And again, why is there so much voter suppression happening and how do we get in front of those things? I think young people are going to help solve a lot of our issues. Again, I know hopefully. you know, we'll do it if we get out of your way. Right, hopefully. But yeah, thank you. Um, thank you for answering those questions. You know, it can be a little daunting at times. Yeah, but seriously, thank you for the insight, the perspective. Um, you know, you're coming from a pretty, pretty diverse position. Um, and you're doing great work. You know, you live, you don't live that far away. Um, and, you know, you're doing great work for the county, as far as I can tell. Um, especially being a, an, a delegate from, from Assembly District 18. So yeah, thank you so much for your service, for your time. Um, is there anything you'd like to add before we sign off? Um, I just want to thank you for having me on the show and for even you know starting this project to really help inform people and get the insight and perspective from elected leaders and from people who are doing civil rights. And for you being a leader in your own community as a 17 year old. I think the I can't wait for you. They better watch out. You're gonna be a power voter. You're gonna know all the little disenfranchisement tricks. And I believe you're gonna do poll walks. Yeah. Stroll to the polls and take a bunch of people with you. I think I've done, I've done that before actually. Um, yeah taking them to the polls. But um, yeah, no, I think the least the ACLU could do is send me some swag, you know, that's a, as, as okay. you know, This is like me talking about my ACLU work, but I think ACLU should have more youth come and speak to us and our staff about what oh. you need from us. We also have a democracy and civic engagement team that's separate from my criminal justice team who does a lot of voter rights protection and advocacy in our state of California. Um, yes. So yes, ACLU is, does a lot of great work on a lot of different civil rights issues. I'm very honored to work with them and to share a bit about myself. But I look forward to, you know, when we will not have to keep reauthorizing portions of a Voting Rights Act and passing regulations that simply the right, the fundamental right exists for everybody and that that's how we're actually experiencing it. I have a little bit of hope now that we have like mail-in ballots that have been automatic during the pandemic and that has increased turnout. So again, there's things we can do to help people to vote and to make it easier. And I'm just very glad that you and your show are one of one of those resources making it easier. Of course.
Anytime. But yes, thank you so much. Um, you know, we look forward to having you back on the show next year, you know, to announce some things. <laughs> can't can't tell the viewers just yet. Gotta leave them with a cliffhanger. But yes, thank yeah. you. So You'll have to keep watching your show to exactly. find out too. Exactly. Can the ACLU plug my show is the real question. We will talk to our democracy and civic <laughs> engagement team uh, and to our media and communications team. Of course, of course. So yes, you have a contact there. I can put in some requests, but <laughs> not control what they say you does or does not do. Well, fantastic. Thank you so much, Elisa. <laughs> I appreciate your time. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay,